It's early in the morning, only 5.30 a.m., and the skies are still dark in Portland, Oregon, where my guest is speaking from his home office. But last night is bright and chipper. I thought the world was always going to get better. It seemed to be getting better in my little hometown. I just assumed that I would someday have the default life. You know, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby in a baby carriage. Les is 75 years old, and after our interview concludes, he'll head to the local high school where he works as a substitute teacher. He commits his days to children, but never had any of his own, by choice. He is, perhaps, the cheeriest prophet of doom I've ever met. The New York Times described him last year as having a Mr. Rogers-esque bearing. Even Tucker Carlson was struck by his sunny disposition. Do you want to eliminate the human race? How unhappy was your childhood? I know a lot of people think that. No, no. I will say that is the sickest thing I think I've ever heard, but you were one of the cheeriest guests we've ever had. (laughs) I don't know how the two fit together, but I appreciate your coming on. See, Les Knight's optimism stands in stark contrast to his central message. May we live long and die out. Live a long and happy, healthy life, if possible. But don't bring more people into existence. Les is the founder of the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. At first, I just called it the Human Extinction Movement. And people were always going, oh, you mean everybody should die? We were imagining mass murders or mass sterilizations involuntarily. So I thought, okay, I'll put a V on front of it. Voluntary Human Extinction, right? And then as I was <laughs> writing out the acronym, I go, ooh, all I have to do is take the T from the end of movement, and I've got vehement. And so when somebody says, are you serious? I'll say, oh, we're vehement. Les believes we humans should stop reproducing and gradually phase out our existence on this planet. It's a bid for the Earth, which we've ruthlessly plundered. And it's a bid for the long-term prospects of biodiversity. He's an environmentalist at heart. The climate crisis is not necessarily the worst that we have. Loss of biodiversity is leading to the potential collapse of the biosphere. We're pulling strands from the web of life and putting more pressure on it, and it's going to give eventually. But he is also a unique sort of humanist. And as a young person reaching maturity in the early 1970s, he was moved by the movements of the day. And ever since then, he's worried for the future of humankind. There was no epiphany said, oh my God, (laughs) the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and the handbasket is made in China. This is awful. I'm still gradually coming to grips with the idea that in the lifespan of somebody born today, our planet is going to be most likely uninhabitable. And that's one of the main reasons I am promoting non-procreation, is so that The fewer people there are, the fewer people will have to live through and die in the coming hard times. And also, the fewer of us that are born, the better we'll be able to care for everybody who's already here. It might sound like Les Knight is the polar opposite of the people we've been talking to so far this season. The immortalists and technophiles and transhumanists— They're all trying to prolong life as long as possible. For them, the future represents a kind of heaven. But it's a heaven that also demands that we become more than human, 
something else, post-human even. Maybe we're cyborgs in space, or we awake miraculously to a world on the other side of the apocalypse, to live again in a time when all the problems have been solved and we're spared the threat of looming disaster. Or maybe it's a future like less envisions, where the Earth continues to revolve and flourish without Homo sapiens at all. I'm Katherine Rowland, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is Seeking. Today, we're looking at the flip side of forever, where transhumanism collides with the Anthropocene. We're living in a time where human activity has so altered the environment as to possibly create a distinct geological epoch. For many people, that's affecting the decisions they're making and the hopes they have about the future. So far, we've been talking with people who long to overcome biology. On this episode, we look at what it means for human life to be overcome by nature. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a young person, Les assumed that his life would be like that of his parents. Spouse, kids, material comforts. But in college in the early 1970s, he was exposed to new ideas sweeping the country. Species loss, biodiversity decline, and overpopulation. This last one is tricky. Our human numbers are on a steady uptick. We're currently adding about 80 million people each year to the planet. But around the time that Les was an undergrad, a new generation of thinkers was linking population growth to resource decline and degradation. Our sheer numbers were placing an untenable strain on the planet. Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich popularized these ideas in his 1968 book, The Population Bomb. The disaster will take the form of famine, plague, or war. They're mankind's old uh, companions, fundamentally. You just got to remember this. There's no way out of the arithmetic. There will never be 7 billion people in the year 2000. His ideas about zero population growth ignited the general public and policymakers, even briefly President Nixon. Because look at what the year 2000 will be. If if the present trends continue, our cities are going to be choked with people, and they will be impossible places in which to live, and the explosions will be even worse. The population bomb was controversial. It's since been called sensationalist and hysterical. But to Les, the idea of zero population growth, or ZPG, made sense. ZPG, as Ehrlich and others promoted it, was about keeping fertility at a steady replacement level, around two children per woman. Les took it further. I thought, well, we really need to stop this completely. Rather than stop at two, we need to stop at once. At 25, he had a vasectomy. This is a pretty bold thing to do for a 25-year-old. How did you come to this decision? 
Yeah, I guess it was at the time, but you know, I would have gotten it much sooner if I could have found a cheaper way to do it. A uh, professor was going on about how awful it was that people were getting sterilized in the mental hospital. And I, after class, said, you mean all I have to do is get myself designated crazy and I get a free vasectomy? And he's going, no, 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 no. But you can get a cheap one at the Health Science University. I thought, oh, okay. Les had the procedure because he didn't want children. But it was also because he didn't want his sexual partners to deal with the consequences of an unintended pregnancy. This was the early 1970s, and women's liberation was in full swing. Looking at what Les is promoting, what stands out is the influence of feminism and the push for reproductive freedom. Because how else do you stop having kids? The patriarchy is our biggest enemy as far as preventing reproductive freedom. Unless you have the freedom and the wherewithal to choose not to procreate or to procreate, you don't really have the freedom in life. We can copulate and not populate. Les's take on zero population growth is literal, as well as pretty extreme and antiquated. But his vision of choice is all the more resonant today. When I see someone who is eight months pregnant, I think that they are victims of pronatalism and that they might not do that if they really thought they had a choice. But to Les, the inducement to breed and bear children is also a mark of capitalism. And for him, this explains the fears in certain pockets that fertility is falling off. The people who are higher up on the economic pyramid realize that uh, more and more people are choosing to not procreate. And the base of that economic pyramid is not expanding. Capitalism feeds on our young, and we should let it starve. I think that's the reason Elon Musk said, if we don't keep procreating, civilization will fall apart. Well, you won't sell as many cars, I think, is what you really mean. In 1991, Les decided he needed to do something to counteract all this needless propaganda. So he created a zine. He called it These Exit Times because, he tells me, these are the times we're living in today. It sounds pretty doomy. But the intent was a broadsheet with a positive message. It proclaimed his live long and die out slogan. But paste and glue is an intensive way to get the message out. Les abandoned the zine in 1996 and took to the internet. The website for Vehement looks like it hasn't been updated since. But it is a clearinghouse of Les's central ideas with posts like, What's wrong with having babies? And does our growing economy require a growing population? It also tries to address the alarms that tend to go off when people encounter his proposal. One post reads, Is this another one of those suicide cults? Another, Didn't Hitler have the same idea? No, no, less insist throughout. It's rather that his vision of paradise is an earth cured of humans. It's a win for Mother Nature, but also, he believes, it's the best way to take care of the people already here. We're on a treadmill here. When we just keep increasing and increasing, we aren't taking care of the people that are here today. 
So the voluntary human extinction movement, by his description, is hardly a call to join Jonestown. He's not advocating suicide or early death or any kind of grisly end for the masses. He's calling for the opposite. A world where no one goes hungry or uncared for. Where climate refugees aren't activating new forms of panic at the borders. And where we feel connected to one another and the earth. Les says... In the absence of that connection, we rely on materialism. We blindly buy things. I've actually talked with women, and a few men too, but mostly women who say they'd never considered not procreating, ever. It was always something they were going to do, probably since they got their first baby doll when they were a little girl. It really takes quite a lot to overcome it, and overcoming our desire to buy things that will fill the void that we feel in our souls. I'd say a lot of it is a separation from the natural world. But his conclusion, all the same, is that we are not fit for this home of ours. So dwindle down and die out. It's a hard sell. But Les has never imagined any kind of large-scale success. He's just out to have conversations to tinker with what he sees as the dominant messaging. And much of what he's up against is the fear of death. You're now 75. How are you looking at your own advancing years? Well, you know, it's going to be kind of a relief when I don't have to carry around the knowledge of the inhumanity to each other and to nature. Given our current trajectory, what is our human legacy? We all know that we're going to die, and it influences us very deeply. And part of the reason people procreate is so that they won't die, in a sense. And the reason people write, produce sculptures and art, music, is that there's a legacy there. They won't die if something that they have created continues on. You know, I think it really is difficult for people to give up the idea of a legacy, and that might be the resistance to our extinction. People are really resistant to the idea of a planet with no humans on it. So, well, no big deal when a whale goes extinct. Why would it be a big deal when a human goes extinct? Let's just imagine for a moment that this message is wildly successful. What what does the world look like? Yes, what it looks like is we don't have two billion people who are experiencing food insecurity. Everybody will have housing. It'll be easy for us to withdraw from wildlife habitat and so that wildlife can recover. We can shrink our footprints by having uh, smaller cities. There are a lot of messes that need to be cleaned up and hopefully that would give people purpose So actually, I see it as really a wonderful place. But for the time being, we're still here in a world of floods and fire and economic uncertainty. Les's stance on human fertility is extreme and frankly, not widely shared. But what really makes him a rarity, I think, is his decisiveness. He's so deeply committed to his understanding of what it would take to make the world better that he's built his life around it. His position stands out in the unease and ambivalence that our changing world creates. I feel it. Increasingly, I'm concerned about the world our children will inherit, my own along with all the others. 
Will orange hues become a feature of their summer skies? Will they live in cities scrabbling for water? Will they be able to keep their sanity as the world careens over the tipping point? Where we are right now with heat waves, wildfires, storms, floods, etc., is probably the best that it's going to be when we compare to what is coming in decades to come. A lot of young people, especially in Generation Z, are saying, how could I morally and ethically have children who didn't ask to be here? That's after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. For the people that I have spoken to, the people that I've studied, climate change is not abstract. It's not a hypothetical thing that might happen at some point in the future. It is a set of impacts that are already happening right now. That's Jade Sasser. She's a professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of California, Riverside. It is ongoing, intensifying, destructive wildfires intensifying hurricanes, storms, and floods that are leaving people homeless, overwhelming heat waves. And it is the full knowledge and awareness that these things will continue to happen in the future, and they are likely to only get worse. Jade studies the way reproduction, population, and big environmental problems intersect. And she doesn't buy into the population bomb argument. People detach significance and meaning to these questions around the number of people on Earth, how many people there are, what the number of people on the planet means. These have never been neutral topics ever. They never will be neutral in the future either. Jade takes umbrage with the view that the destruction of the planet is a matter of population size. It's low-hanging fruit, simply saying there are too many people on the planet, consuming too many resources. It's an easy thing to say. It sounds like common sense. But the thing is, that kind of narrative has been used to justify some of the most abusive and coercive policies that have ever been created. Abusive practices like eugenics or sterilization or pegging food aid to fertility control policies. This idea of more people equals more resource consumption, it's patently false. When you actually look at the evidence, the actual data, those who use the most resources are large-scale institutions. Governments, militaries, and corporations are the most significant polluters and consumers of resources on the planet. But when we look beyond that to the individual scale, the affluent, wealthy people consume resources in ways that dramatically outpace people who are low income or poor. 
Les Knight and the pronatalists we met last time, Malcolm and Simone Collins, they're all fixated on population size. But to Jade, this is wildly missing the point. The numbers game is a political sideshow. What's real are the anxieties. Jade's current research is looking at how the climate crisis is affecting the way young people, in this case, people ages 22 to 35, are thinking about reproduction. People are concerned with all of the usual things that people have always been concerned about when it comes to thinking about whether to have children or not, whether they're financially ready, whether they have the right partner, whether they have the living situation that they want to have whether they feel within themselves that they kind of have gotten to a point of being stable enough or established enough to do that. But layered on top of that are these additional questions about climate change. So in the cohort that you've spoken to, how are these anxieties then being acted upon? Most of the time, the people who I speak to about this issue actually do want children or they kind of want them, but there are reasons not to. And they feel like climate change is this big, overwhelming issue or set of issues that make them feel like they cannot have the lives and the futures that they want, including families. Jade's work points to a cascade of anxieties. There is no one overarching concern troubling young people today. It's never just about reproduction and climate change. It's about feeling unsafe in this world, feeling really worried about our levels of extreme political polarization, feeling like they'll never be able to afford to buy a house. They're also really concerned about their own mental health, too. This is hardly the first time humans have made, or tried to make, reproductive choices in the face of an existential threat. Human history is a chronicle of wars and famines and forced relocations. And there is, of course, America's own egregious record. Black and indigenous people in the United States have always lived in conditions of existential threat. There has never been a moment in the history of this country in which our existence here has been assured. In terms of communities of color, indigenous communities, first contact was a moment of apocalypse, Genocide against indigenous communities has been ongoing. So this question of being able to ensure a solid, stable, healthy, happy, optimistic future has never been there for communities of color. I'm saying all of that to say that this idea that now is a a unique moment is simply untrue. But what is unique about this moment in time is the way it has altered the view of the future. In prior generations, there has always been a hope or perhaps even an expectation that the future will be better than what we have today. And so this hope that my children, my children's children, etc., on and on into the future, whatever life it is that they will lead will be better than the life conditions that are available to me and to those who came before me. I would say that for people who identify as Black, Indigenous, or people of color who already feel socially vulnerable, who already feel socially marginalized, perceive the impacts of climate change as something that makes it even harder 
to feel good about the prospect of having children in the future, knowing what they would be brought into. For Jade, it's logical that climate anxiety and the lived experience of climate disruptions, fire, floods, choking haze, that these would muddle reproductive choices. Climate anxiety is not kind of this amorphous thing in which people think about the future and how it's going to potentially be so much more challenging than the present and what will I do some undefined number of years in the future. Climate anxiety is that and there's a wildfire raging right now. Am I going to have to leave my home? Or there's another hurricane coming right now. Am I going to lose my home? Sometimes it's a lower level kind of a simmering concern of is this what's going to keep happening over and over again? And again, when it comes back to the reproductive conversation, what I have heard over and over is a real concern with what kind of life will I be giving to my children, knowing that it is going to be like this or worse into the future. This distress makes sense. But what do you do with all the anxiety and uncertainty? How do we start to metabolize these fears, if indeed we actually can? I am a mother of three, and I've thought a lot about how to hold space for this reality. How do you do that in a way that actually offers space for the worry and the continually shifting reality that young people are navigating? It's challenging. It's very challenging. I have had one incident in particular where my students just totally melted down. This is a room of 22 young women had a complete meltdown talking about their feelings about the future. It was really hard to listen to because I wanted to rush in and comfort them. I wanted to impart a sense of hope and encouragement, but first I needed to just back up and listen because they needed to be heard. The prevailing narrative is that young people will save us, that they will reverse our climate future that they will find the solutions, that they are the ones that we've been waiting for. What I have heard over and over again in interviews is that that is profoundly insulting because young people did not create this problem. And historically, do not bear the burden of responsibility for it, and yet are being burdened with being the saviors of this planet, this atmosphere, this climate, this future that they did not create. I also have the impulse to rush in and soothe and shush it all away. It's my reflex in the face of feeling helpless before something so large and so destructive. Just this morning, my five-year-old daughter woke up in tears because she had dreamed of being gunned down in a toy store. Hers was not a vision of climate mayhem, but it activated the same impulse in me to assure my child that these horrors are confined to the realm of nightmares. But it's my job, really it's on all of us, to get clear with the young about the world we're launching them into. A lot of what the younger generation is worried about are the problems of now. Job security, stable housing, air they can breathe. It feels so much closer to Les's thinking 
and so far from everyone else we've talked to this season. The millionaires and retirees who want to live to 130 and spend their days golfing. The resurrectionists who want to fast forward to a time when all the world's problems have been miraculously solved. I can't help but wonder how our drive to avoid death at all costs has created a world that is much harder to live in. And what would it mean instead to make peace with death? To acknowledge that the Holocene might be coming to an end is also to acknowledge that we ourselves individually are to come to an end. That's after the break. So, like I said, my impulse with children, friends, strangers, is to offer comforts where I can, to take away fears and replace them with hopes and niceties. I've always thought that was a form of service, a way to be a good citizen. But what if that's just making the problem worse? James Rowe believes that our propensity for denial is part of what's driving these existential problems in the first place. James is a professor of environmental studies in cultural, social, and political thought at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. Now, what does that really mean? For me, wanting to make sense of the puzzle of why humans treat each other like shit on a regular basis and why they treat the more-than-human world that way as well— James's work centers on how denial feeds injustice, and he's coming out with a book on why accepting death is a political necessity. He set out to understand how humans can continually suppress the truths that appear to be right in front of them. London, England had a smog problem as early as 1285. Uh, here we are hundreds of years later, and uh, yourself in New York and myself here on the West Coast sucking on forest fire smoke. So we've got these long-standing social injustices and environmental harms. We've had powerful social movements arise to counter them, and yet these problems persist. And wanting to understand like, why, why do these problems keep happening? Might it be that we're not addressing some of the root drivers. And James believes the root lies in our most elemental anxieties, which is the unmoving fact of our mortality and the fearsome hold it has on our lives. Because if we don't find ways of metabolizing them, of processing them, then it's very easy for us to sort of compensate for the smallness and the belittlement we can easily feel in the face of finitude by wanting to impose ourselves on others, other human beings, the more than human world, as a way of gaining the strength and power that the natural world seems to deny us by writing death into the fine print of all of our life contracts. James is convinced that this free-floating fear really makes us assholes. We deny and struggle against death, but ultimately it's out of our hands. So we try to assert our power over other people and the planet. To James, it's the original recipe for supremacy, which leads to all sorts of interpersonal violence and cruelty, but also to systems built on exploitation. And that is why he believes that embracing death is politically vital. 
You can't hold a protest against the fear of death. You could, it would be an interesting bit of political theater, but it's not going to accomplish much. And so you need different kinds of practices that can actually metabolize these anxieties that exist below the skin. But what does it mean to embrace death? It's in awareness of the fact that we die. And so it is expressing deep gratitude for an earthly life that will one day end. And there is something incredibly mature and powerful about being able to face the reality of finitude and make friends with it and indeed say that I love this life that will ultimately end. James believes that by moving beyond denial, we can discharge the anxieties that otherwise emerge as dominance and greed. That helps soothe some of those energetic anxieties that exist below the skin and instead help people approach each other and the more-than-human world with an ethos of generosity and openness when they actually feel rich and thankful and grateful for this existence that will ultimately end as opposed to feeling enslaved by it. In modern society and in the medical systems we've created, death and dying are sanitized and largely kept out of view. But James says that sitting with death, admitting that it will touch you and those you love, disrupts that remove. In 2011, my partner was diagnosed with metastatic or stage four breast cancer. So it had moved from her breast to, to lung. And so, you know, the prospect for getting through that is not good. Uh, it's technically a terminal illness. And I can tell that story with relative ease right now because she's doing great. Her health is excellent, no sign of cancer. But the reason I bring it up is that I wouldn't wish that experience on anyone. It's horrible. And then at the same time, there is something profound I've learned about getting to live in proximity to death. It brings a heightened intensity to the everyday. It helps to sort of cut out the noise around what matters and what doesn't in your life. For most of the people I spoke to this season, death does not contain any value, nor does it make life more significant. But James is saying the very opposite. The story has a meaning because it comes to an end. We don't have to be best buddies with death. We don't have to welcome it in with open arms, but we have to create a relationship with it. That doesn't mean we have to have one foot in the grave and be morbidly obsessing about it, but just being real about the fact that life includes death brings, again, a, a level of intensity and richness to the everyday. James believes this is more than a personal issue. It's not just about the individual thrashing against mortality. It's a bigger turn, and we need society-wide rituals to help us process the human condition. When I asked James about what we're supposed to do, he offered a parable about a woman who rescues a child who's drowning in a river. And by the time she gets back to shore, she hears that there's another child coursing downstream. And so she calls out for fellow villagers to come and there's all these kids that are, that are in the water drowning. And so they form this human chain to pull all of these children out of the water to safety. And they're doing this all day. They pull child after child out of the water. Everyone is confused and upset. And then some of the villagers break away. 
ready to walk to the next town and confront whoever is throwing the children in the water. And they say, we're going upstream. We want to find out who's throwing the kids in the river in the first place. And I think that for me, we have to be pulling the proverbial children out of the water. We have to be addressing climate change in the here and now. We have to be addressing access to abortion in the here and now. We have to be playing that game of whack-a-mole. And yet we also have to ask ourselves, why is it that these proverbial children keep getting tossed into the river? If we might be able to stop what's happening upstream, then maybe we don't have to commit so much of our lives to addressing and worrying about all these profound injustices that, that dampen our existence. So James is suggesting that the climate crisis, for all its enveloping horrors, is ultimately a downstream issue. The more that we deny death, the more death that we bring. And, and climate change is, I think, a symptom of death denial on a grand scale that is already wreaking great havoc and it's going to get worse. It's not just the pursuit of profits that keep emissions churning. James argues that it is denial on the individual level, that the way we live is threatening our own existence. And the changes are manifest in our lives today. Winter happens differently now than it used to. We have a, a fifth season now. It's forest fire smoke season. And, and so even those who uh, don't believe in climate change, like they're, they're registering these changes at a somatic level. And I think it's heightening their level of anxiety that then paradoxically can lead them to sort of double down on resisting the kind of changes that, that we need. As James is talking, I wonder if the quest to live forever represents this kind of doubling down. I see in the search for longevity and immortality a sort of glazed optimism, hoping for a perfect future while denying the conditions of the present. And so we return to the fundamental question, what does it mean to be human? Is it about prolonging your pleasures, imagining the glory of your distant legacy? Or is it about being a part of a greater fabric, knowing that the world will go on even once you've been erased from its surface? For James, being human is about accepting the generosity inherent to the cycle of life and being ready when the time comes to pay it back. As we're finishing our conversation, James steers us back to roots, in this case, linguistic roots. The word human like comes from the Latin humanitas that comes from humanando, which is to bury. It's related to like humus, like uh, soil. Our humanity is rooted in our return to the earth and our uh, burying of our dead ancestors. This is a somewhat contested point, whether human and soil are truly linked in the history of language. But it's a point I've seen taken up over and again, and maybe that's a form of truth unto itself. Even if being human does not necessarily mean to put bodies or seeds underground, being human does mean that our days come to an end. And it's up to us whether we choose to struggle against this reality or find a way to weave it into our lives. Next week, we hear from two women who work with the dying. In being around death or considering mortality, considering what that looks like, 
I think that those things deepen us as human beings because the one thing that binds us all is birth and death. What happens in between those two is what makes our lives unique and different. Seeking is written and presented by me, Katherine Rowland. Maya Croft is the senior producer. Our producers are Rob Dozier, Erica Gaida, and Tiffany Walker. This episode was edited by Megan Dietry. Megan Dietry and Lizzie Jacobs are our executive producers. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Mixing and music supervision by Sam Baer. 